everyone. Thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with I'm speaking with Michael Schellenberger. Michael is an author. He's um, got two books out, Apocalypse Never and San Francisco. He's also written a bit about woke being a religion and getting some classifications down on that. Hi, Michael. Thank you very much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. Great to meet you finally. Yeah, it's uh, good to actually, I guess, you know, meet a little less virtually, sort of, <laughs> than on Twitter. Um, your book, San Francisco, I I finished reading it um, a couple of days ago. I mean, I was like, you know, you see the pictures and you hear stuff coming out, but just when you're describing the background of how it all happened, it's like, like incompetence isn't almost even <laughs> like come to describe it. So, I mean, if you wouldn't mind talking a bit about that book and like, like they were trying to do good, but they just went about it in such a wrong way. Sure. So San Francisco is the really the second book in a trilogy I'm working on about the, the threats to civilization from within the ways in which we take our remarkable progress for granted and in various ways are undermining it. And the subtitle really says what the book is about. It's called Why Progressives Ruin Cities. So it's a critique of the progressive the, or what you might consider sort of the radical left plus a fair amount of liberals and the policies that have resulted in open air drug scenes, um, public camping, increasing crime, just the general social disorder that's been increasing in San Francisco, but also other liberal cities, including Los Angeles, Seattle, Portland, and increasingly other American cities, but also even Canadian cities, Vancouver um, is the most famous um, that are struggling with our drug crisis in ways that are counterproductive, as you mentioned, where we're enabling addiction and enabling a lot of self-destructive and socially destructive behaviors rather than using what I argue are the basic tools of getting people into rehab, having consequences for behavior, requiring people to sleep inside, things that uh, are required to make a, a useful and safe and healthy civilization. Okay. Like I lived in Vancouver for a little bit, so I know what you're talking about. And I mean, my first, it was my first day, it was my first or second day, but it was the first time I was taking the sky train there. And I walked to the station near my friend's place. I was staying with him. And I mean, the first thing I saw, and this was right near the start of the east side downtown where it would get like scuzzy. But, yo, know, I saw someone with a needle in their arm. You know, and it's like it, this was the middle of the afternoon on a weekend in the summer. And it was like, you know, I've seen poverty. I've been to a lot of parts of the world where people are poor, but like that was kind of shocking to me. It's like, you know, and this was in 95, like the policies, some of the things you're talking about, like, like when you'd mentioned like the people living in tents and you'd shown how homelessness, you know, compared it to like New York and Chicago and like how, you know, how much shelter they have compared to what they have in San Francisco. Again, what, like, do you have an idea of what the thinking was behind those policies? Because it just like, they didn't seem like they made any sense. Yeah, I mean, basically, there's been this idea that the people on the street are victims and that only things should be given to them and nothing asked. And so there's I think the first thing to, for your listeners to understand is that homelessness is really a propaganda word. It was deliberately chosen to, to mislead people about the problems of people on the streets. 
basically to make people think that they're just poor rather than suffering from untreated mental illness and drug addiction. Uh, there are poor people who occasionally lose their homes or, or are escaping an abusive husband, for example. Our societies do a really good job of taking care of those people, increasingly good, better than ever in hundreds of years. We're able to get the single mother fleeing an abusive husband, her own apartment. You know, if someone's down on their luck, there's somewhere that they can go, including shelters. But what's going on with the public camping is what Europeans call an open drug scene. This is congregations of drug addicts and drug dealers in, in, in clusters and cities, often near downtowns, uh, mass transport stations, subways, trains, bus stations. And they, you know, this is very common. I mean, one of the most important things I discovered when I first started researching this was this paper on open drug scenes in Europe and how they made all the same mistakes that we're making now, just trying to help people and offer voluntary services. And then they finally realized they needed to use the police and social workers to get people off the streets because ultimately there's just a lot of folks that, you know, when you're addicted to hard drugs and you've quit your job and you've been living with friends and family and you've been stealing from them and lying to them, eventually they kick you out. And that's how people end up on the street. That's the classic case. And for folks that are suffering untreated mental illness, it's often just manifests a similar way. They won't take their meds. They're having manic episodes. They're becoming psychotic. Their family and friends don't know how to handle them or they just escape and they go and live in the city and often become addicted to hard drugs. But this is, um, it's not really an issue of people choosing it. It's really people falling into addiction and seeking to serve their addiction um, through any means necessary. And that often means just not paying rent and living right near where the drugs are because they need to use every few hours. And again, I mean, like I would see that a lot in Vancouver and that was a part of the problem in Vancouver. I don't know if it's the same thing in San Francisco. You know, they said, if you build them, if you build a building too high and you like, you weren't allowed to hide the mountains basically. So you were limited on what you could build. Then there was gentrification from both sides. Downtown was cleaned up going eastwards. And then from the east, yeah, the suburbs like getting larger and larger and they were getting squeezed into a smaller and smaller area. So it just seemed like, you know, there's a larger concentration of people in one, one specific area. And it just, I don't know if things like that would have made it worse. I don't know if it, like if those people had been over a wider area, would it have been easier to get them some sort of support as opposed to they're all concentrated in one little area. And it's just like, you know, one big mass that it's hard to deal with. There's, there's this big problem of concentrating addicts and sick people in one place. It's clearly a big part of the problem. One of the things that they did in, so all five of these, I've mentioned these five European cities that there's this paper on how they dealt with open drug markets and open drug scenes. One of the things they did is they redeveloped the neighborhoods. You know, they just had to change the housing stock and improve the housing stock to have a much more mixed development so people of different social classes in the same neighborhood that's what they did in amsterdam it worked out really well it's a really sweet neighborhood and they ended up subsidizing housing for some low-income residents not all cities have to do that but for sure you're right the concentration of of services for homeless people in a single neighborhood is a guarantee to concentrate all of the dysfunction in a single place and it's not just the services it's also the housing so ultimately, I think that the same thing has to be done in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, that the housing stock needs to be redeveloped. And people, you know, I think that people have a right to shelter. I don't think people have a right to housing. I think that's two separate things. Um, 
we should not let our brothers and sisters die on the streets. They should have access to safe and clean shelter. And if they want, if they want housing, then they need to make progress for their own sakes towards independence. So it is possible for people with schizophrenia to live on their own. It is possible for people with drug addiction to get over their addictions and live on their own. And, but housing should be a reward for making progress on your personal plan, including through abstinence rather than an entitlement, which is how the radical left and progressives in these cities have treated housing and therefore concentrated it in these really poor neighborhoods. Okay. Now you'd mentioned like you're going to be doing a trilogy. So I see you write a lot about the environment or at least tweet about it. And um, especially nuclear energy, which like, that's kind of like a little pet thing of mine as well. I'm like, why aren't you going towards that? But I, so I'm assuming apocalypse never is something along those lines or am I off on that? Yeah. So apocalypse never argues that uh, climate change is real, but it's not the end of the world. It's been grossly exaggerated. It's not even our most important environmental problem. Our biggest environmental problem remains poverty. Um, and that means if we want to save the environment, then we need to move towards more energy dense uh, fuels from wood to coal to oil and natural gas to nuclear. Renewables actually require a significant amount of landscapes. They also make electricity more expensive and unreliable. And um, modern agriculture not only has lifted people out of poverty and saved millions and billions of lives, it's also been a way to reduce our pressure on the natural environment. So the question I had in working on Apocalypse Never is why is it that the people who claim to care the most about the environment are advocating policies that turn out to be pretty terrible for the environment, including shutting down nuclear plants and place, replacing them with fossil fuels, including building industrial scale renewables um, around the world, which uh, destroy uh, critical habitat and kill endangered species. And the answer is very similar to the one that I come to with, uh, or that I came to with, um, in San Francisco, which is that this is really about a radical left uh, view of the system as being a bad thing, our capitalist liberal democracy as a bad thing that needs to be radically overthrown because it's the source of all suffering, oppression, inequality. And so when, um, when you say, well, why don't we just solve climate change by building nuclear power plants or using more natural gas and less coal? That doesn't satisfy the radical left's desire to completely overthrow and change the system. Similarly, mandating addicts to rehab or, you know, and, and having sufficient homeless shelters for people to live in doesn't satisfy the radical left demand to have a radical overthrow of society and replace our liberal democratic capitalist system with something more resembling socialism or anarchism. You know, there is somewhat of a difference we can go into, but basically the basic view is that the system is to blame and any, any half measures that do anything other than completely change the system are to be opposed, including ones that might even save lives or reduce environmental impact in the short term. Okay. When you mentioned that, like this was something I was speaking to someone about earlier when you mentioned the system. And I said, if you take a look at the riots last summer with the BLM and what they were attacking, and if you want to talk about January 6th, the two mindsets there are different. For the people who were doing the riots in the BLM, I'm not talking about the protests, like, you know, we can get into the protests, but like the actual rioting and all that, the burning all the stuff down, they were attacking like the Starbucks and the, you know, even the mom and pop shops because their mentality was everything is a system. It's not just the 150 federal buildings that we're attacking. It's not just this, it's 
The Starbucks is part of that capitalist system. That mom and pop hardware store is part of the capitalist system. That whole system has to be brought down. Whereas the people, like, I don't want anyone to want to get into the semantics of insurrection, not whatever, but the people who were there on January 6th and rioted, for them, where power was, was government. Like, for the people, who, like, like I said, Antifa, BLM, whoever, for them, it was everything all at once. Whereas, like I said, the people on January 6th, they wanted those who were there with ill intent, like they wanted to get rid of, that was their seat of power. That's what they were going for. I don't know if, I, if, if I'm making sense with that or if like, if, or if that's how you kind oh, of see absolutely. it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think there's, there's sort of two things going on at once. I mean, on the one hand, there's an ideology which says the system is the cause of all these problems. We need to tear down the system. But there's another part of it, which includes, you know, getting rid of, of all sorts of modern institutions, including meritocracy, psychiatric hospitals, police stations, nuclear power plants, reliable electricity, um, you know, free and liberal universities. Um, there's all these things that the radical left is attacking, all these institutions, but there's other ones that they're building up, right? More power for the teachers and the teachers union, more power for the government to issue vaccine mandates and all sorts of coercive measures on vaccines. I mean, one of the questions people have asked me is, why is it that progressives are so comfortable imposing vaccination mandates on the whole population, but so uncomfortable imposing drug treatment on street addicts, you know, homeless drug addicts who break the law? It's a really interesting question. It seems like a contradiction, but it's not because ultimately progressives are in the grip of what you might call victim ideology or woke religion, which says that that people who, that we can divide the world into victims and oppressors and to victims, nothing should be required and everything given. And so COVID is mandated for everybody, not just for victims, whereas drug rehab is something that would need to be, need to be mandated on victims. So the left is comfortable strengthening certain aspects of the system um, over others, you know, the teachers union over the police officers union, for example, and there's, you know, there's a partisan tribal element here too. Teachers tend to be more liberal. They tend to be democratic. Cop, police officers tend to be more conservative. They tend to be Republicans. You know, same thing for nurses. Um, so that's definitely a big part of it. But I do think that the victim ideology goes a long way to explaining why progressives do what they do. Like, I get what you're saying there, but I'm also thinking in some aspects, the teachers union being strong lets them shape minds right? like the police union being weak lets them allow you know like all the videos you see the shoplifting and stuff like that people just walking out of stores just you know like to me that would make a little bit of sense as well like you you know whatever you, you can there's quotes from like aristotle all the way down to like stalin about you know grabbing the kids young and, and like indoctrinating them right so it, it would kind of make sense that they would want to have control of I've spoken to a few teachers and the colleges of education have just gone to hell with this stuff. Sorry, I'm just going to ramble for a bit. You mentioned the, the woke religion there as well. And it's the first thing I thought, like I was overseas from 2002 to 2000 and I got back in 2014. The first thing I said is like, we've got blasphemy laws again. Like when the hell did that happen? You know, I just started noticing like a very religious like aspect to this stuff. Like, I just want to get into that, but I'm just thinking like, 
I look at it when I, and I just, okay, I read this stuff and I, I spent a lot of time reading um, CRT and intersectionality and like gender and queer theory. And, um, you know, I, I did like the, the legal studies, like some of the stuff like Bell had written and all that, but like this came into colleges in the early nineties, like with the intersectional framework, like I know you had critical legal studies before, but I think it was when it had took on an intersectional framework. And from then on, by the late nineties, like between like 90, like 97, 98, that's what I'd say that the progressive movement like took on this ideology fully and it's grown as a religion since then. And like, like I said, I, I, like when you talk about it as a religion, like how do you see it starting? When do you see it forming? Like, you know, cause I know a lot of people said, oh, it was 2012, it got off the university, but I'm like, no, it's been brewing for a while. Like it's gone on you know, like in its current form, it's like the early nineties. Well, yeah. I mean, it's a very, yeah, that's one way it, trying to figure out when this begins is a tricky task, as you can imagine. I mean, in the book, San Francisco, I go back to uh, Friedrich Nietzsche in the 19th century, where he predicted that the decline in belief in traditional religions would lead to all sorts of new religions, including the religion of scientism, which is the idea that you can determine moral values from science, that you can somehow get from uh, what is from a what is to a what ought, what ought to be, which I think most of us don't think you can do. That values are decided; they're maybe informed by what is going on in reality, but ultimately, um, you know, you can't decide that um, homicide is wrong because of what's happening in nature, you know, um, animals kill each other. So like, it's just not a very good guide to, to how to live. So, yeah. So, I mean, I kind of go back, I just kind of, I'm a strong believer in secularization hypothesis. I think the evidence is overwhelming that that belief in traditional religions is going down. That's the case for Hinduism, Christianity, Judaism, that even people with that identify in those religions have a much more squishy view than, than, than their grandparents did or their great-grandparents. And that we, we still need a spiritual and moral purpose. Um, we still need what a famous psychologist called an immortality project, which is the belief that some part of us lives on forever. You know, a lot of people satisfy that by having kids and grandkids or writing books, or, but a lot of people solve it by having a political project. And so if you want to understand why progressives get so defensive and angry when you suggest that their utopian vision is not all that it's cracked up to be, that there's problems with it, that it can't happen for a variety of reasons or shouldn't happen, and you get somebody coming back at you with just serious, deep anger and hostility, I think it has something to do with the fact that you're threatening, in some extent, their immortality project. You're suggesting that the fantasy that they have, maybe in background, maybe unconsciously in their heads... Um, you know, is in one way or another wrong or inaccurate, or it's not a realistic way to look at it, that maybe you're not helping poor people, maybe you're hurting them with your policies, they get really hostile, that can't be the case. So woke religion is a sort of, you know, I sort of, there's a big demarcation problem, as you probably know, with religion, like what's a religion versus, you know, what's just a belief system and what's the morality. Um, in the piece that I wrote on why wokeism is a religion, where I created a taxonomy, with my friend Peter Bogosian, where we just on the left, we created these issues, race, crime, climate change, drugs, homelessness, trans issues. 
And on the right, we on the on the horizontal axis, we created all these characteristics of religions, you know, um, origin stories, you know, um, founding myths, taboos, purifying rituals, angels, demons, uh, you know, um, priest like figures. And we kind of go through who they are. I was sort of I did it on an airplane. I had just finished reading John McWhorter's new book, Woke Racism, where he argues that wokeism is a religion. And, and so I just created this list and started to kind of pull it apart. And once you do it, it's like, wow, it's so obvious, you know, that this is a religion. It just fits all these different categories. There's actually a, a there's a whole academic, but there's a whole body of scholarly and academic research on secularism and new secular religions. I mean, the most famous secular religions are arguably communism and fascism, but <laughs> I, I think it's important to note that, that these alternative religions don't have to be bad, <laughs> just like religions don't have to be bad, that you can have, uh, for example, patriotism might be a perfectly wonderful alternative to wokeism, or it could be terrible. Um, but, but it really, I think that bringing some awareness and consciousness to the fact that th these are mythological at some level, they're, they're spiritual and religious at some level, I think helps to create greater humility and maybe le slightly less dogmatism and attachment to those religions. Cause like I said, the religion thing I've been seeing it for a while and I kind of, I've been calling it a religion. I just, you know, there's people on Twitter or whatever. I'm just, who are supporting this stuff. I just call them, I just basically say they're apologists, but like some of the similar reactions you would get. So <clears throat> like you can understand with like, you know, the woke stuff um, it's so based on identity. So their beliefs become their identity and it's, you'll see that. I mean, you notice that a lot more in Islam than I think you do in some of the other religions where you are a Muslim. So attacking your, the beliefs is attacking you and your identity. And, right. And it's, yes, it's the same visceral reaction and it's, you know, that's right. You know, so if you were to you know, get into an argument with a Muslim or you're having a discussion, you can have that, okay, well, if, you know, denying that Muhammad saw an angel and got the Quran, I mean, that's, you're attacking the whole core of their beliefs. Whereas, you know, if I say, no, there is such a thing as biological sex and men cannot biologically become women, man wants to transition and become a trans woman fine you know, I, I, I have no issue with that but i have an issue when you say no biologically they're now a woman i'm like no they're not and you know that's the same kind of thing it gets the core of that issue and it's attacking their identity and it's really yeah you know, like i said I, so i get the same visceral response between the same you know between those two groups Yeah, you got it. You're attacking. So in other words, you, you when you're it's attacking, yeah, who they are, their whole orientation, their whole identity, something so central to who they are. Um, and yeah, and then I think that what you're pointing to with the trans issue is something that's very interesting to me. I mean, I was sort of asking, I don't know if it's in that piece, but I was sort of like, why is it that if I came out tomorrow in Berkeley, California, where I live, which is super liberal, very progressive left wing. And I was like, hey, everybody, I'm a woman now, and I want you to call me Michelle. Everybody would just applaud me for my courage and bravery and even hold me up as an example to other trans women. And they would say he's now she's now a woman, um, no different from other women. 
And first of all, that's bizarre because I would be different. There'd be something very, very different from a trans woman to uh, biological women. But then the other issue was I was thinking if I came out and said, hey, I'm black, Michael, I want you to refer to me as black. I'm a black man. And I decided today I would be run out of town. You know, I'd be ostracized. I'd be demonized. Um, So I was kind of like, why is that? I mean, because on the one hand, I think a lot of people might agree that it's a lot easier for that. that I'm a lot closer to a black man than I am to a white woman. There's um, we have a lot more things in common and arguably the whole concept of race is just nonsense since there's only one human race and we can all procreate with each other. And that's what distinguishes us as a single human race. Whereas that's a problem. If you become a trans woman, it's, it's not obvious that you can or that you could in the same way. So I was trying to figure out why that was, and what I came down to was, well, trans activists are comfortable with me saying I'm trans, whereas woke activists are uncomfortable with me saying I'm black. And so it's a completely arbitrary distinction. But in both cases, there's a kind of supernatural component here. There's this idea that one can make oneself into the opposite sex simply by, by changing one's pronouns. And similarly, that one could not, you know, I mean, because arguably, look, I mean, we're all Africans. If you if you believe the current story about human evolution, we're all we all date back to Africa at some point. And yet somehow that's viewed as as inaccurate for me to say that I'm African or or African-American. So so I was trying to get at that and I kind of go, well, that's clearly we're in the area of the mythological um, and religious rather than, you know, biological or scientific. And wasn't there a paper in Hypatia where someone tried to argue for transracialism? And I mean, I think like the magazine got a whole lot of flack. Um, this was in like think of the early 2000s. That could be. I, you know, my, my co-author, Peter, is more of an expert of what's in Hypatia than I am. Yeah. Well, okay. Look, I probably like I, I know this fact probably either because of either Peter, James or Helen, one of those three <laughs> put that fact out there. That's the only reason I know it, you know, and like. Um, I, I didn't bother reading the paper because I've read enough of that stuff. And I'm like, you know, I think I'm, <laughs> I need a pause from that. But I mean, the, again, with the trans and the racism stuff and cause there was that guy recently who was having surgery to make himself look more Korean. Yes. You know, like the, like the links people are going to this now it's, but with the trans. Okay. Like, again, this is another thing that I see it with Islam. It's the same thing. Um, so, and people, okay. So I'm talking about people who've detransitioned. So they've had surgery, some sort of surgery, or they've gone on hormones for a long extended period of time. And they start detransitioning, especially people who've had the surgery. They're like, oh, well, you were never trans in the first place. And it's the same thing. Like if you say, well, I no longer believe in Islam. It's like, oh, well, you were never Muslim. Now that is more plausible. I mean, like, I'm sorry, but someone didn't go get surgery on a lark. (laughs) you know like you were never really trans in the first place like it's like again like i I, i'm looking at it from like the uh, apologetics and how they defend it and it's the exact same thing like it's there are two dogmas and they're being defended in the exact same manner like i see the same arguments i see the same reaction or the same types of arguments you know 
or you're taking it out of context. And usually when you read the context, it's even worse than what they're talking about. Again, like with the, you know, you were never really trans to begin with. Right. Like if you want to talk about race, like someone's politically black. like. <laughs> right, right. I see a lot of similarities between the two. If it was possible. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, well, no, I mean, you should finish because I, yeah, you're inspiring a lot of thoughts. That's all, but go ahead. No, I, 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 sorry. I was just going to say, like, I'd really like to see up here in Canada or in the States, someone attack that from a separation of church and state type of thing. Like, you know, this is a religion you're putting in a belief system and you're building laws based on belief systems. Like, okay. My government has, in all but name, a ministry of CRT. We have a ministry of diversity, inclusion, and youth. And the primary mandate of that ministry is to set up an anti-racism secretariat to oversee all of the government to make sure that they're being anti-racist. Yeah. You know, like, like we've got faith in our politics. And I, I'd love to see like that kind of challenge to this stuff be brought up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, um, I think some ways just talking about it as a religion has helped. Um, and I, you know, we've had a really big response to it. Um, you know, people are requesting the taxonomy as of woke religion as a poster. You know, when I came out with Apocalypse Never a year and a half ago, there's a lot of people who were like, you know, calling environmentalism as a religion just seems like, you know, a low blow or something. And I was like, you know, I'm not necessarily even saying, I'm not saying religions are bad. I think religions can be quite beautiful and maybe they may be inevitable, um, but not having any awareness of it. in this particular apocalyptic religion is pretty bad news. I just increasingly find people are like, yeah, now it's increasingly obvious to me. I mean, just look at the way Greta Thunberg talks, look at the way these guys talk about the end of the world. It's clearly a religion. Um, and yeah, that gives me a lot of hope. I mean, I think that, you know, there's some things where we can change them just by changing how people think about them. You know, at San Francisco, and obviously with energy and environment, there's a lot of things that have to change in the real world too. But, you know, I'm out there making the case for nuclear power plants often or making the case for mandatory rehab or enforcing laws against public camping. But at the end of the day, it's like what's really in the way of those things is just some sense that, you know, that there's some you know, supernatural powers and that giving power to some, you know, some morality that doesn't really make any sense. With the, okay, so just sticking with environmentalism for a minute. So like nuclear power, like they're not going for it. They're shutting down, like Germany's talking about shutting down more nuclear power plants, even though they're, you know, they're starving for energy. Um, Because, I mean, you've, you've talked about like activism and activism and stuff. But is part of the problem... I mean, okay, the, the academy is definitely part of the problem. They're churning out people who think like this, but it's getting, it's spreading further and further into the academy. But is it like part of the problem is it is a faith and they do have belief in this in the same way. I, okay, I look at it. Uh, so, so let's just say someone gets out of high school, they go into college, they get out, you know, whatever, end up with a master's in whatever. But they've had this kind of indoctrination. I equate them to a new convert. And new converts are always really zealous because they have to prove how, you know, how, how pious they are. So when you're looking at like a, a problem like the environment, you know, oh, nuclear waste, nuclear energy is dangerous, blah, 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 blah. 
their religion tells them it's solar. Their religion tells them it's wind. Their religion tells them it's all renewables. So is part of the problem that we're like colleges and now even more like going through K through 12, their goal is to actually create activists and not create like an environmental scientist. You're creating an environmental activist. Oh, for sure. That was, I mean, it's funny because there's sort of this idea that there's this idea called cultural Marxism, which is this idea that Marxists in the 60s and later sort of started to train people to become, to take over institutions and destroy them from the inside. I think it's called the long march through institutions is another word for it. I think Wes Yang calls it successor ideology. And I think if you go onto Wikipedia, um, which is such a super reliable news source, as you know, people describe it as a conspiracy theory. And I just kind of laughed because I was like, well, that's how I was trained. So I guess I'm part of the conspiracy. Um, um, maybe, I'm a, but it's not a theory. You know, I mean, I went to a really very radical left college called Earlham College in Indiana. It's a Quaker school. I was, my degree is in something called Peace and Global Studies. They, we were absolutely trained to be, you know, cultural Marxists. We read Antonio Gramsci. I read Antonio Gramsci. Ah, I must have read him a half a dozen times. Um, you know, and he's, of course, the great Italian Communist Party leader who argued that that the way to win power was not to just overthrow the government in one, you know, violent revolution, but really to take over, you know, the church, the hospitals, the universities, the police stations, the military, take over the institutions from the inside, be patient. And yeah, he was a, sorry, Gramsci was the one who came out with a long march through the institutions, right? Like that was his turn of phrase. Yeah. And he, that was like, I think he was the paper he wrote about that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was trained in that. Um, so <laughs> it exists. And then I went to grad school and did the same thing. Um, no, I think the long march institutions is by somebody else. Um, um, I thought it was Gramsci. It looks like it's it- uh, the German communist student activist, Rudy Dutch, Dutch. Um, no, it's hey, fine. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, I, I thought it was Gramsci. Gramsci called, he called people that like us who were trained for that organic intellectuals, nothing to do with organic agriculture, just sort of being, you know, integrated into the society. But that's real. And that has definitely been the strategy and it's worked. I mean, you have Angela Davis, who's, you know, the kind of, one important new left radical left leader from the sixties is at Santa Cruz professor there, you know? um, And yeah, so you can kind of go, I think there was something important in the nineties that you're pointing out, which is, I think, which is by the way, when I went to university as well. um, Yeah. Which is when like a kind of rad, a lot of radical left Gen Xers and boomers are, are, are taking over uh, university institutions, you know, coming to power, in the universities, but also getting trained to take over other institutions. And those folks who, if, you know, my age, I'm a Gen Xer, so I'm 50 years old, you know, you're at a certain point when you're 50, when you're starting to enter into senior leadership positions in different institutions. And that is the same period when we see a lot of fairly radical changes to these institutions occurring, often with the support, of course, of millennials and Gen and radical millennials and radical Gen Z. But, but it makes sense that it's been a sort of gradual process since the 60s. Like that's, I've, I've 
I pretty much say the same thing. Okay, yes, fine. You can go back. It started in the 60s. And they're like, oh, we have to teach teachers or we have to teach people not to be racist. So then you're training teachers to teach kids not to be racist. Like, you know, I'm just using that. Like, It kind of builds up. But then, like I said, I think when they put that intersectional framework on it, that's when it took a huge shift. And that's, again, this might be my little tinfoil hat theory, but I'm like, you did that in the early 90s. Then by the time people started coming out with like, you know, masters and graduate level studies or, you know, like doctorate level studies in those disciplines with that lens, like with that lens to look through or with that framework, it was like the late nineties. And yeah, they started, Oh, the government needs someone to help them set up a program about racism. Well, this guy's got a PhD in African-American studies, but, or this, you know, whatever this person has in a PhD in African-American studies, but that, that PhD, if it had come out in the seventies might not have been the same as the one that came out at the end of the nineties because of that intersectional framework. And it was just, I'm not saying it was a huge conspiracy or anything like that. It was just who they hired in those positions. And like the HR positions get filled by people who come out with degrees in like these kind of fields. So that slow shift just started happening gradually because if you want a chemist, you're going to go find a PhD in chemistry. You know, you want a physicist, you're going to go find a PhD in, in physics. Like you want someone to help you with a social work problem. You're going to find a PhD in social work. And it was those fields that had this kind of framework and this lens of how to look at problems. And they got into the administration. So, you know, when a lot of people say like, um, uh, you know, when they talk with the media, oh, well, that's, it just took that long to get that many reporters in. It's like, no, the problem didn't just happened the problem's been there for a while and it was growing and it was growing because the hr people and the admin people were woke and they slowly started bringing in people who thought like them and again i'm not saying this was a conspiracy or anything like that yeah. it was just how you're trained to think you're going to do your job and you're going to hire like-minded people and that was it and i i, I think like and then you know it it came to a head in like 2013 when it really started leaking off the university campus. Yeah, I agree. I think that's a, I think that I think the idea calling it a conspiracy theory is just a way to gaslight what's obviously been going on. Yeah. And again, like all you have to do is look, okay. I, I don't want to keep you too, too much longer, but I, I'm going to have to ask it like, cause I, this is something that's been frustrating me for since the last U S election. And again, I'm in Canada, but I've got a woke prime minister. The stuff that's coming from the U, you know U.S. academies is like totally corrupted my country. So I need it fixed from your guys. So maybe I can right. get it fixed up here. Um, but during the last election, now a whole bunch of people said, "Okay, you know, if you vote for Biden, Biden won't go woke, and it'll be easier to fight this stuff back." You know, Trump is a distraction. Blah 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 blah. I mean, I didn't buy that argument then anyway. And now we're like, okay, you're just seeing how far this stuff had spread. And when I look at that, I'm like, right after Trump got elected, there was a whole slew of people who said, you know what, the excesses of the left are why Trump got elected. I mean, I'm not talking about the New York Times and CNN and MSNBC that went straight to the racism thing, right? But like a lot of, you know, public intellectuals who were saying that. But then pretty much right after his inauguration or right around his inauguration, it was all Trump all the time. And they didn't do anything to fix the problems on their side. And I'm like, I'm, I'm looking at, 
know, when the CDC comes out with a recommendation that vaccines should be given out by race and then they pull it back and everyone's like, oh, well, at least they pulled it back. It's like, no, there's something wrong at the CDC. Go take a look. <laughs> you know, like, like, like my frustration in this is you had four years to do something about fixing your side and you didn't. You rented about the orange menace. And I mean, all the media outlets would have done that anyways. Someone needed to fix what was wrong on the left. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I, I've been writing a lot about, I mean, I, I will say, you know, I think trends are nonlinear. So the trends that we've been describing, there's no reason to be like, it's just, there's a way you can tell a story where it all just ends in the, it all results in the end of civilization. And I don't think that's accurate. And part of me, I've been really obsessed with the Netherlands and it's a big part of San Francisco talking about how they've dealt with their drug problem. I also really love Netherlands on nuclear. They've just embraced nuclear. And so there's something clearly in the Dutch culture that resonates with me. And I think it should resonate with everybody that is concerned about this, which is, you know, it's our, one of our oldest civilizations, the Netherlands, you know, became the first rich European country in the 15th century. Well, they're doing pretty darn well for a, a country that hasn't been a global uh, imperium for, you know, a, a half a millennium. And they have a really nice balance between, you know, love and compassion, but also discipline, hard work and consequences for behavior. Um, and I, there's no reason that we couldn't do the same in the United States. You know, there's no in fact, there's a lot of reasons that we could because we're such a country oriented around self reinvention in Canada, the same thing. So there's no reason we can't do it. I've been writing a lot about these um, more moderate and interestingly enough, African-American and Latino politicians, Democrats in the United States, who are now pushing back on woke religion, particularly around drugs, crime and homelessness. I have another piece coming out tomorrow talking about how why black and Latino politicians, why it's them, you know, rather than you know, liberal white politicians or even liberal conservative, I'm sorry, even conservative white ones, why they're the ones that are really capturing the moment. And I think the funny thing, of course, is that there's really three reasons. The first is that it's obviously good politics because the public is upset about the open drug scenes. But it's also, um, you know, also, I think there's some personal experience. These are a lot of folks that grew up in the ghetto or in poor neighborhoods where violence was high, a lot of crime and violence. But I think the third thing is just that, you know, this is how wokeism defeats itself. If you sit there and you spend years or decades talking about how we have to center black voices and we have to pay special attention to black folks, black and Latino folks from uh, difficult circumstances. Well, when they are elected as mayor and then say we need to have a crackdown on drug and crime, it's kind of hard to then turn around and say that they're that they're reactionary fascists. So. I'm actually feeling pretty optimistic that we're in the beginning of a yeah. backlash and think we're going to see a lot more of it. Okay. I, I, okay. I do think there's a backlash, but I don't think what I'm worried about is, okay, the backlash, the politically correct stuff in the late eighties. Oh, well, we got rid of it. No, you didn't. It just went underground for a little bit and came back even worse. And so if there's a backlash to it, are they going to actually fix the underlying structures? Like, are they, you know, if, if a college wants to teach Kendi or whatever, like teach critical race, like Chicago just set up a chair of critical race theory, the like university of Chicago, you want to have that chair fine, but I don't think, I think universities need to step back and say, okay, is this stuff viable? Okay. 
like, can we legitimately give out PhDs in this stuff or are we making a joke out of myself? Like if I had a, if I had a doctorate, the fact that Kendi had one would make me feel like my doctorate is, is devalued. Like, like these fields are actually devaluing degrees. And I mean, well, you, you know, you mentioned working with Peter Bogosi, like, I mean, what they did with the, the so-called squared hoax, I mean, like the grievance studies affair. Like if you can't see that that system is broken, You know, you can push back on it now, but if if you don't fix the underlying things, I think we're we're just going to be back in the same situation. But instead of like twenty years, you know, like between the late eighties, early nineties, it took twenty years or so. I think it's going to take like five or ten for this stuff to come back again if we don't fix it. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I think that it would be a shame to waste the backlash. You know, but at the end of the day. <laughs> <laughs> like we need universal psychiatric care. We need um, a better balance between carrots and sticks. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, I agree. I think, um, I think that there has been particularly in the United States, but I think obviously now we're seeing in Canada too, which does have universal health care, um, an unwillingness to deal with this. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I sometimes wake up and think, well, this is really a great opportunity for the center, right? you know, politically a center right that embraced universal psychiatric care and rehab and wasn't just lock everybody up, but was a more sophisticated, more like a Netherlands because the Netherlands party that's been good on this is a center right party. Other days, I think, you know, um, it's just going to come from Democrats. You know, that's who it's been coming from so far. But I do think it's coming. I obviously, you know, look, it's much more interesting to try to create the future than to predict it. So conversations about what will happen are really quite boring. Um, much more interesting is what do we need to do to help make it happen? Oh, yeah, I don't know. I, like I said, like I, I, I do think just on the education thing, like what's going on with parents, I think parents finally noticed because of all the remote learning due to COVID, they learned, finally figured out what was going on in their kids' classrooms and like, no, 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 we can't have this anymore. And so, yeah, I mean, that's a huge pushback on the education stuff. But yeah, I think there is going to be a lot of stuff that comes out like again, you had New York, uh, Washington, New York, uh, was it uh, New York, Michigan, and Utah, or New York, Washington, Utah, that had like race-based uh, COVID policies just recently. Like all those things that came out, you know, people aren't going to stand for that. Well, like I said, I, I hope that the underlying stuff also gets fixed. Look, like I said, I don't want to keep you too too much longer. So if you have any last words, or if you want to. Say any more about your books, please go ahead. Let people know where they can get a hold of you. Thank you. Yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Schellenberger MD. I'm not a medical doctor, but those are my uh, initials. And then my books are San Francisco and Apocalypse Never, both available on Amazon. I respond to all my correspondence. You can email me at michaelschellenberger at gmail.com. And yeah, thanks so much for having me on. Well, no, thank you very much. It was uh, great talking to you. And again, like I said, I, I really enjoyed San Francisco. So People should go out and read it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have to get your uh, your other book soon, and then hopefully when you when your trilogies, when your third book's finished, I can take a look look at that as well. Well, thank you again very much for coming on. It was great talking, great talking to, you. to you. Glad we made a connection. Mm -hmm. And thanks everyone for listening. <laughs>